The final season of Power Book 2, Ghost, begins. And for Tariq St. Patrick, it's the moment of truth. In the wake of being betrayed, pushed out of the drug game, and almost killed, Tariq is out for revenge. Will he prove to be like his father and do whatever is to be done to protect his family and his future? Or is he his own man? Power Book 2, Ghost, the final season. Watch now only on Stars and the Stars app. State Farm Insurance knows that understanding and investing in our cultural identity is paramount in protecting our future. We know what it's like to go from nothing to something, to wish that we had better financial literacy when we were younger. Luckily, State Farm is here to help. With funding programs like Project Ready, which is committed to education achievement and has already awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to black and brown youth since 2021. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. What's good, family? I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we're your hosts of Street Politicians, the, the place, place where, where the, the streets, streets and politics, politics meet. The end of six episodes covering gun violence. Yes. I hope that people are paying attention, you know, because this is a topic that is is, is definitely, is literally between life and death. We're going to be really, really focused on this issue and bringing people from different states and different areas, folks who deal with different types of issues that may cause uh, people to pick up guns. We're going to be talking to mothers. We're going to be talking to people who've actually pulled a gun, who've been shooters in the past. We're going to be talking to folks who have been uh, who are victims of gun violence um, and also elected officials and other community members who are working to make a change. My brother, his name is Prince Matt. He is the head of community and culture at the Citizen App. Welcome, brother. How you doing today? Good. I'm good, man. Thanks for having me, Mice. I appreciate that. So before before we start, Mike, if I may, um, from being a, a victim of gun violence and, a, and also a perpetrator of gun violence, um, where I spent half my life in prison for, I want to personally apologize for the shooter and for anyone who has been a victim of gun violence. I personally, Prince, I personally apologize for every last one of them, for a lot of them do not know the, the um the consequences and the hurt and pain and trauma that they have caused. So before we even start anything, I'm going to take full responsibility because I played a part in this violence in America. I played a part in gun violence specifically in America. And I want to take a first say I apologize for them and many more to come. Well, and that's it's things like that, brothers, why I admire you and I look up to you and I wanted to have you on the show because, you know, like you said, you work in the field of gun violence and you actually have been a perpetrator of gun violence and you understand both dualities. You understand the reality that the shooter has. You understand the reality that someone who is not the shooter has and you've been able to um, to see both sides. You know, you, you spent, like you said, you spent half of your life in prison. What do you think that we need to tell the people like us, the people in the communities, the 
quote unquote OGs, the ones, the gangsters. What, what, what message? How, how do we get through to them that they have a responsibility to lead these kids in a different direction, that they have a responsibility to give these kids opportunities and chances and things that they didn't have so they don't make the same mistakes? How do you how do you think we relate that message? What do you think we need to do? A lot of the OGs in our hood are being validated for the wrong things. You know what I'm saying? So we could validate them, but when they start to do the right things and we start to validate them, we could validate them and give them that, you know, that power that they need to make what we're talking about trending. Just like they make tight pants trending, oh, we we, we, we can make peace trending. You know what I'm saying? Just like they make tight pants trending, the OGs have the ability to make peace trending and to make, you know, um, um, cleaning our neighborhoods trending because they love validation. Validation, then we have to challenge them. We have to challenge them because you can't live on, you can't live on both sides of the narrative. Either you want to save your community and help the community or you want to continue to destroy it. I appreciate you, bro. I love you, man. No, man, I love you too, man. man. Mike, it's a, it's a pleasure of, of, of just talking with you. I love you to death, man. And I'm going to follow you to the end of the world, bro. You are great. Keep doing what you're doing, man. Love you, King. That's how we own it. It's, it's good to have uh, Shanduke McFadder of GMAC in Brooklyn, New York. Our change come, maker. That's right, to come as our change maker. Um, and also because Shanduk deals with shooters every day, right? So Shanduk, we are happy to have you on Street Politicians for the first time, but it won't be your last. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. First time, not the last. I'm with y'all. <laughs> Tell the people, give people some background on what, what GMAC stands for, what the work that you do. It's a little bit of background. Yeah, I got you. So, you know, in this work, I realize I, I have to so often tell who I am, what I've been through, for people to understand how I'm capable of doing the work that I'm capable of doing. Uh, born and raised Brooklyn, Kings County Hospital, raised to a single mother, never seen my father. I was raised in the projects after my mother got us back from foster care. I became a product of what was around me in the White Corp, NYCHA houses in downtown South Brooklyn. By the age of 16, I was first incarcerated, became one of the first adolescents to join United Blood Nation. This was Rikers Island, 94. So when I did it, it was only adults. The adolescents didn't even have a, a box or a bing or a shoe. We were sent to HDM and that's where we met the adults who ultimately introduced me to what became a product of my life that sent me back and forth throughout the prison system. In 2008, uh, I was finishing up my last prison sentence from 5, 2005, 2008, the criminal possession of a weapon. And I seen a father who seen who met his son, who he had on a conjugal visit, never seen that child a day in his life in the streets. And that child came to Sing Sing prison with 35 years at 17 years mm. of age. And I was the only person who witnessed that experience. And I had to make changes because I had twin boys who were then about six or seven years old. And I decided to change my mindset. And I ultimately know that I had to be part of the solution and no longer part of the problem. So I created an organization that made sense to me which is GMAC, which stands for Gangsters Making Astronomical Community Changes. And that is a 501c3 nonprofit public charity that focuses on gun violence from a public health perspective, also dealing with social justice issues and all the things under the umbrella that's causing the violence and the issues in our community. What do you think it's going to take to really cut the gun violence in, in, you know, in, the, in the cities and in the communities that we come from? It's going to take a lot more money Mm. or community-based organizations. It's going to take 
other leaders that got money that they could give to these communities. We, we're spending too much time hoping that the city and elected officials are going to bail us out through our fight. And we cannot uh, depend on that alone. So we need everybody invested because some way, some form, we got a part to play. We played a part when we were young, and I'm just speaking in general. But to really answer the question, through my work, I've seen violence go down. Through our partners, the life camps, the man ups, the organizations that are doing this work, the, the work we are doing is shown in our areas where we focus. People don't know where we at, so they understand that we focus on a small area and we focus on the small percentage of the same individuals that's pushing the button, that's driving the vibe. It's not everybody in our community, no, no matter what they're trying to portray. So if you focus on all these individuals and throughout the city, throughout East Borough, and you, are, you pinpoint who the shooters are, you pinpoint the individuals that's pushing that, you'll be able to bring down the violence because our goal is stopping the transmission. So every time somebody gets into an argument, we need to be able as a, as a people to be in that conversation to figure out how we could de-escalate because somebody may be more upset than the other person and walk off and think it's over and it's not over. And, and we had that uh, incident where our young 10 year old was shot in Far Rockaway yeah. in over a, a parking spot. And if someone was able to have had that conversation after the argument to bring that brother down, we would have saved the child's life. So that's what we got to do. And on top of that, we got to get these elders to step up. Mike. Mm -hmm. I know we're talking about these brothers. You know, I'm tired of brothers talking about these young boys is wilding and these young, man, man ain't no young boy ever going to tell me how to move. I don't, listen, these are our children, right? We have much more experience than we got to, we got to pull a rug from under them. We got to, we got to run up in, the, in, the, in their, their safe spaces, make sure they ain't got access to the things they got access to. We got to be accountable for them. These are our children pulling the trigger, killing our children. So if we're not the ones stepping up the men. Our women shouldn't be on the front lines. All these guys is tough, they're gangsters, all their music is talking about it. The real toughness is in the streets stopping a young person from killing somebody. And that's what we gotta do. We gotta saturate the community with leaders who are not afraid to get in front of that, that gun and say, listen, we're not doing that, here's why. Amen, and I appreciate that. We have had those conversations painfully and lovingly many times Amen. over the years. And certainly, I think we've grown, both of us, from those conversations. So we love you so much, Shandu. Thanks for joining yeah. Yeah. Street Politics. Yo, love Thanks, you, bro. Duke. We talk to you later. Yes, out of soul. Peace. Peace. So we have a, a beautiful guest with us today, someone who has been through a lot. You know, we don't really talk about how women are impacted by gun violence. We talk about how brothers are locked up because of gun violence, how brothers are losing their lives, but black women are definitely impacted. They are victims of it. They've seen it. They are mothers who've lost children. And today, who we have with us today is Miss Patience Murray. And I'm just glad and honored to have you with us today, Patience. Thank you so much for that. Honestly, I know you understand what it's like to experience loss. The loss is always the transformational experience, I feel like that thrusts you into your destiny and your purpose. And Akira Murray, she was actually my sister-in-law. So I actually talk about it in the book, Survive and Live, the Patience Carter story. So I hate to ask for this, but unfortunately it's important to bring people to that night. Mm -hmm. I know you've talked about this on a number of platforms a million times, but street politicians, listeners may not have heard it um, or may need to be reminded. So can you take us back to that night you decided to go out with two friends? What happens? You guys are having a great time. And then what happens? Wow. We were having a great time. 
that's the most important thing. And anybody can just be out having a great time with their friends, right? At the club that night, it was the best night ever. Like there is like really no other way to say it. It was the best night ever. We had a blast. Akira, Tierra and I were all there for vacation. That was the first night of vacation. Wow. That was night. So I spent, so I, I was actually shot in both of my legs and the bullet that entered my right thigh shattered my femur. So I have a metal rod and screws for the rest of my life. And I actually have a bullet fragment that's gonna be there for the rest of my life, unless it gives me problems. But the reality is it was just vacation. Mm. It could have been anybody. It could have been any three girls walking into a club from Philly, experiencing that situation that night. So, and the fact that I'm even here, the fact that I'm alive, that I have breath, that's a miracle. Yeah. The fact that I'm able to do all this stuff and I wanted to get to it, I definitely want to get to it, but I'm, I'm the impending chief vision officer for the Gun Violence Survivors Foundation. Mm. And I never understood how important it was to have a foundation just solely dedicated to survivors because I thought that there were all these resources for gun violence survivors because my view of gun violence, being a gun violence survivor was in this mass shooting. Mm. So I had this outpour of community love and support from Orlando but the reality is people experience gun violence every day and they don't get that outpour of love. Mm. They don't get outpour of support. So the Gun Violence Survivors Foundation basically is the foundation that answers those unmet needs, those unseen survivors, those mm. people who feel neglected and feel forgotten. That's what I'm trying to address. We commend you. And you know, we you also have our condolences and our strength. We just I just wish to have the strength that you have. You know, it's not me, it's not me, it's God. Well, it's listen, God. God is my strength, and yeah. that's what I'm sharing right now. And this is why I'm stepping into this leadership because it wasn't me for mm -hmm. five years. I was crumbling for five years, crumbling, pretending to be healed, pretending to be happy, pretending to be this advocate, right? Now I'm finally where God has designed me to be and it feels great. And I want to share this message with other people like, listen, you don't have to stay broken. You don't have to stay broken. If I can go through what I went through, you can make it through whatever it is that you're going through right now. Wow. Well, we are so thankful. Yes. Tell us the name of your book. Where can we get the book? Tell people how they can follow you because you are a leader and you definitely need to be followed. So give all that information so we can share it with the audience. Well, my book, Survive Then Live, is available everywhere. It's survivethenlive.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at P-A-E Carter. That easy. That's how we own it. Think Maggie is with us. There she We just had Patience Murray on um, who attended uh, Wounded But Alive. Uh, she was there for an incredible event that you hosted, and she just talked about her situation. I mean, obviously, you know the story. She was shot in Pulse nightclub um, mm -hmm. in Florida, uh, and but she's now in an organization called Survive, Survive Then Live. Yeah, Survive mm -hmm. Then Live. And she's doing great work. And um, my son and I thought that we didn't, we thought you would come another week. You know, we're doing a series of probably about six shows on gun violence, but we wanted to be intentional by starting with this conversation around how women are impacted because not enough is out there, not enough information, not enough conversations, not enough resources and advocacy. And my son was saying, but well, we need Maggie on. We met patients. Yep. Through Maggie, and here you yeah. are. 
why did you why did you decide to start an organization um i feel like when i got shot i couldn't identify with anyone i feel like i was with i was at the time dating someone who also been shot but i feel like a man being shot or a man being injured is way worse than a woman being injured and they don't identify with us because you know guys just you know pick up and they're taught to just shake it off and we we deal with our own insecurities daily i wake up i'm worried about my hair my eyelashes this that now i have a bullet in my leg and a rod from my knee to my hip and i know i can't run or i can't go to the gym and it's these self-conscious moments that i felt like i knew it was other women out there that i needed to speak to hmm oh, maggie you know that you you are um such a beautiful sister and you're a little sister to us and we love you so much and 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 i know the struggle you know i've heard mm -hmm. you talk about the struggle of how deep it is just mm -hmm. the mental space of of having to keep going but also having that memory of what took place that night you were just out having a good time you weren't thinking in any way shape or form that you could get shot that it would be you of all the people it was mm -hmm. but it was you for a reason it was you for a reason because you had the profile and the audience to be able to bring other women together to tell their stories and um and we want to continue to support you we probably haven't done enough let's do more how can people support you you and your organization right now well, right now we just have our Instagram up, which is Wounded But Alive, WBA. Um, I'm also going to take, now that COVID is like calming down, I'm going to see how to get to different cities and just provide services, local services with the hairstylists and manicurists and massages. And then we all do our healing session where we sit in a group and we just talk and we let it out and then we drink and then we paint and then we... I just want to do that just in every single state that I can touch because gun violence is, is happening everywhere. And us women are the ones that are being hurt and we have no one to talk to about it. You know, once again, we love you. So we're going to salute Thank you. you. I love you, you guys. That's how we own it. That was good. I love Maggie. Maggie. I love Maggie down. Huh? Maggie has a beautiful spirit. Uh, she's amazing. And Patience also has a beautiful spirit. The final season of Power Book 2 Ghost is here, and no one's future is safe. After surviving a hit on her life, Monet, played brilliantly by Mary J. Blige, has to reckon with what led her to almost lose everything and to atone for the life she has forced her children to live. And on the other side of the coin, Davis, portrayed by the multi-talented Method Man, is suspended and on the verge of losing his law license. Desperate to survive, he fully embraces the criminal underbelly of his enterprise and finds himself working for both sides loyal to whichever one benefits him most. And then of course there's Tariq, who finds himself at rock bottom and facing threats from every angle. With his future in the game in serious doubt and his family safety on the line, will he lean into the St. Patrick name and do whatever has to be done to get back on top? Like father, like son. Power Book 2, Ghost, the final season. Watch now, only on Stars and the Stars app. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, 
More storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. When the NBA championship is on the line, every pass, every shot, and every dribble is immediately, undeniably consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, real blood, and real tears. Trust me, I know what it takes to bring home a championship ring. The regular season is tough, but these games are a completely different level. Now is the time when legacies are made. The best team will bring home the Larry O'Brien Trophy and add their name to basketball history. Will we see a battle between marquee franchises or will we see a new champion crowned? Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year? Their year. These are the moments of unscripted, pure entertainment that only happen on the hardwood. You've waited all season for this. It's time to take it to the next level. The NBA Finals continue. Tune in on ABC. That's how we own it! Let's um, go to our guest, Chico Tillman, who is going to be with us. Um, You know, for the next... And, and we try, y'all. We said for six... For a series... Of six episodes, we're going to focus very heavily on gun violence. Obviously, very on gun the violence. issue of gun violence, intervention, prevention, awareness is really important to us, um, not just um, here at Street Politicians, but also in our personal lives yeah. based upon our experiences, based upon um, you know our work and our passion and our focus in terms of what our organization Until Freedom does. Yeah. And now we're going to have a conversation with another brother, a friend of ours. A friend of ours. You know, we got friend. so many friends, man. <laughs> this friends show is just full of friends, man. You know, and um, this is somebody that I respect, the work that he's done. Dr. Chico Tillman. Yes, my Dr. Brother. Tillman. Hey, first of all, I want to say I'm humbled and it's a pleasure to um, be, a, be a part of this program because I respect and appreciate the work you do day in and day out and some of the challenges that that come with the work. So it's really an honor just to be having this dialogue on this platform with you. And I want to say publicly how much I appreciate the work you do and how I see firsthand all the sacrifices you make for our people to make this place, this country, a better place to live in for indigenous people. Thank you so much, Chico. We appreciate that. You You know, you are certainly our brother. Um, You know, I want to make sure that folks understand who we're talking to in this series where we're focusing on gun violence. Each show has different things. And the reason why we wanted to have you on as the senior research director for the University of Chicago's Crime and Education Lab, um, I I think, and, and my son and I were talking about what this series looks like, we have to have people, elected officials, folks who are practitioners, folks who do mental health support, Mm -hmm. because this issue of gun violence is so much bigger than just putting law enforcement in our communities. So that's why we wanted to have you on today. So Chico, tell us what you've been doing, what you're working on. And then, of course, we'll get into how people can be helpful. 
the first thing I want to say is thank you for recognizing that we can't arrest our way out of it. Mm. And I want to start by saying that most people don't even think critically that when a situation happens or if a situation occurring, you don't call law enforcement till it reaches a, a particular point or escalates to a point where a crime has been committed. And then it's too late. Somebody already shot. So one of the things I'm working on with the crime lab is building systems and structures throughout the United States to change the way we look at it. Um, I think we have to address the root causes of violence. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is systemic racism. Um, and it, it, and it's, in, it, it's in a plethora of spaces. It's not just, and what it does is it allows individuals who live in these vulnerable communities to be traumatized day and night so that when they reach conflict, they already dealing with all these microaggressions mm. and they're at a boiling point. So something as simple as an argument escalates to somebody being um, killed. So I say, first, we got to address these systems. And I love the work that you're doing because it addresses the systems. Um, another huge thing we're doing nationally, I'm working with a group of great minds from all over the country on an initiative called Fund Peace. And what we're doing is getting these resources down to the people on the ground who live in these vulnerable communities. When I say vulnerable communities, I mean disinvested communities. And I think the big problem is people want us to work a miracle with short money. Mm. If you have only a certain amount of money, somebody's going to be left out. And they're giving us a short amount of money to work out all the kinks around violence when violence occurs for a plethora of reasons, which the government needs to be involved in because they help create these situations. You know what I want to ask you? And then we're going backwards with this, but I just want you to give a little bit of your background. Like, you know, where did you yeah. come from with, you know, your situation? How did you get to this place to where you are this esteemed doctor who understands our community and able to, to really give the solutions that's going to change? First, I want to start by saying um, I'm from the Austin community, which is um, numerically the most violent community in, in Chicago. Mm. Um, it's one of the poorest communities. So I'm from the hood or the street. Um, I do have a background in a subculture group, which means I was, in, in, in clear terms or vivid terms, I was a part of a gang. Um, but I had an epiphany, and I was um, sentenced to 20 years in prison under draconian crack sentence, but I should have only got three and a half years. So I did 13 excessive years because of racial profiling, and the criminalization of black people mm. by the United States government. Mm. Let me start there. So at the in prison, I realized uh, what allowed me to be able to mentally go through this process was that I realized some of the things I was doing wrong and the influence I had on so many people. So I wanted to do something different. And coming home, I fell in love with this process of being able to save lives because it was a conflict between two groups and I knew both of the guys and I was able to stop people from killing each other. And I'm going to be honest, I never felt anything remotely close to the joy and satisfaction that I got from saving a life. Mm. And I was bought into that process. But 
what I learned soon as I got into the process is that without education, I wouldn't be able to make any impact in terms of decision. And that's what started me on this track or this road to going back to school. And the difference from me and a lot of other people is I'm still connected to people in the street. My perception of people hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. I don't think they monsters. I think they just like me. They need pathways or opportunities to change their life. And they need to be connected to people like me to know that it's possible. Mm -hmm. So I still have relationships in my community. I still go in my old community. I still love on them guys. I'm patient with them because it was a process for me to change. Mm -hmm. The day I was released, the expectation was that I'd be normal. Mm. as if none of that never happened. So I never received any services to help me psychologically transition back into society. Now, I had a support system that helped me navigate. Imagine for everybody that's arrested or go through that trauma, the pressures of getting out in the first day, the first thing people talking about is getting a job mm -hmm. as if not, none of that had ever happened. Yeah. And I think we got to work with these people and help them understand what you went through is not normal, mm -hmm. no matter what you did to get there and help them go through a transition period to get back acclimated to society. I, I say the same thing all the time, man. especially, you know, being in prison. I didn't do as much time as you did, but just understanding just the dynamics, you know, and then being acts to just come back into a society and just be, you know, and resume as if you've missed time, you, you miss, you know, you miss generations, like 10 years is a decade, mm -hmm. you know, so many things happen in two or three years, in two or three years being free, things have happened that have completely changed. So 10 and 16 and I'm a seven years that I did, it was, it was, it was a real far stretch and it took a lot of time and fortunately for us, we had those support systems, man, that was able to do it. So I just want to say, I commend you, brother, on yeah. the work that you do, you know, especially where you do it at. Like you said, we just had a, you know, I was out there with you, man, and the spirit and the love that you bring to this work and to this movement is needed and is appreciated, man. So listen, fun piece, we with you. Yeah. We want to, you know, we want, if you, we want to, whatever we can do to help, you know, we with you. We're going to make sure that we, we align with you. Once again, another one of our friends and our brothers. Keep doing the work, brother. You are appreciated. You are definitely one of the ones that are shining. And these brothers definitely need you in these streets, man. If there's an organization out there, grassroots group, that is looking for support and wants to become a part of the Fund Peace program, I want to make sure people understand clearly that Fund Peace is a conduit to help grassroots organizers and organizations get resources so that they can do the work in their communities. And so, like you said, there are multiple pathways, but you all have the knowledge base of how to do that. Where do folks go? How do they get in touch with you? Go to Fun Peace now and you can, you can sign up as a partner. We don't turn anybody away. And when you go to the site, funpeacenow.org or .com? .com. Funpeacenow.com. Okay. And then you and when, said when you go to the site, it will tell you. You can sign up as a partner and come on Wednesday and have access to all the material we have for free. So it's, it's we're we doing everything we can to try to help as many people as possible. That's how we own it. That's how we own it. That's how we own it. Yeah.
So we, um, you know, as also as a part of this series, I think uh, what's important is while we are covering those people who have the ability to make real, like, big change. So, you know, someone like Chico, he is someone who, with the work that Fun Peace is doing, they have the ability to really help support a lot of people On across the nation. Level, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and But at the same time, what I am also very, very, what makes me hopeful is people like Patience Mary, who is a victim, Maggie Carey, a victim who's turned their pain into purpose. And this brother who is joining us today, Kareem Nelson, is one of those who we see at protests all the time. He's out there not just um, for, you know, for the issue around gun violence, because certainly we've seen him at, in the Bronx and different places right. um, marching to bring about change and to help curb gun violence and to bring um, uh, gangs together, but also I've seen him at police brutality protests. I've seen him in so many different spaces out there as a real advocate. His name is Kareem Nelson again, and his organization is Wheelchairs Against Guns. Kareem, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the personal side, um, Kareem. What happened to you? Um, I ran across a man in a complex selling drugs. I didn't want him there anymore. You know, I exercised my gangster, and um, the day that I saw him was Father's Day. You know, he was doing what he was doing, and I was totally frustrated. I had a gun on me, but it was in the bushes. And, I, you know, my frustration and my stupidity uh, allowed me to put my hands on that man and his friend, you know, shot me. That was June 1995, Father's Day. Um, my life, I never had a job. I don't know what working is, so being put in a wheelchair was like, a, like, like it's foreign to me. They wanted to give me a check. That was worth five hundred and eighty-three dollars a month. I had to live off that. I had to pay rent. I had to do all that. So you know, not never having a job, low self-esteem, not believing in myself that I could do better. I fell back to the streets, and this time when I went back to the streets, um, I caught a federal federal charge for uh, conspiracy to distribute fifty grams or more of crack cocaine. Uh, I lost my apartment, went to jail. Uh, Four and a half years, God changed the crack laws for me, got me out of there early. I came home, still didn't learn my lesson. You know mm. I mean? Still thinking about the streets and trying to catch up and my money not being the way I wanted it to be, you know, for doing dumb things in jail, like gambling, you know, and things like that. So when I came home, I was behind the ball. I thought I had to catch up. Went right back to what I knew. And, uh, this time I trusted my, my family member. I had a family member that was in the streets also. And, you know, we did this thing a thousand times between us. This one time when you know, we went to go do the business, he decided to take all the bread. And all the money wasn't mine. You know, some killer's money. It was some good friend's money. And, you know, the killer's money, they money. And I couldn't produce it. So that night, they rocked me to sleep and brought me to the van called the pump. Drove somewhere dark. And they was about to, you know, pulling bags out the trunk to put gloves on. And I got scared. For the first time in my life, I really value my life because mm. I really got scared. You know, you know, I played with them brothers. You know, God always with me. A car pulled in. He wasn't the only ones there no more. So that was that. They couldn't do what they had to do. I went home. Got my, I had. I was fucked up at the time. I had to borrow the money from my mom to give these niggas back their bread. I gave them back their bread. And that night, August 14, 2014, I, I, I sat in my bed and I, I put, I finally understood why I was in his wheelchair. And the, the purpose of me being in his wheelchair was to help other young men 
that look like me, sound like me, you know, and come from where I come from, don't have to ever go through this. So that's my story. Wow. I ain't proud of it, but you know what I mean? It is real. It's real and it's raw and it's and it's it's a familiar story, you know, with the with the um the exception of the wheelchair. I know a lot of people have that same similar story. So all of these <laughs> programs that that we see out here now, um, you know, wheelchairs against guns, uh, you know, life camp, um, uh, you have uh GMAC, you have uh who who else? Um man up. You have all of these different organizations. We, you're saying we didn't have access to that. You didn't have access to those types of orgs at the time. Nah, 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 not at all. Hmm. Not at all. It's, that's why the kids today don't realize the beauty of what they got. You know what I mean? They got real people that you know done what they've done, lived the life that they're trying to live, coming back talking to them. You know what I mean? And they don't really realize that. You know, I mean, that's a, it's a sad part because, you know, sometimes when I turn the news on in the morning and I hear about all these kids getting killed, I feel like I'm not doing my job. Mm. You know, I feel like I failed. You know what I mean? I like, like I left a lot of kids in limbo and limbo in my neighborhood that just thought that selling drugs and doing stupid shit was cool. And I take the blame for that. You know what I mean? That's another reason why I give back so wholeheartedly. We don't have no funding. Every time you see me or you see my organization, we out there on my dime, you know, and I make it, and I make it work. You know, and God has been good and allowed me to continue to reach these kids, you know, so. Wow. So you don't have the, you don't, you're not funded at all in the cure, in the uh, crisis management system or any of that. Hell, okay. not $100. Wow. wow. And that's, and I think that's what the issue is for me. It's just understanding that the brothers like you to have a story that is relatable, that the young brothers in our community will be able to relate to. And you can change them and redirect them in a you know in a different direction, but yet our government and the organizations don't see the need and the necessity to fund people like yourself. But they want to spend that money to incarcerate our young kids, right? You know, so I think the preventatives, the preventative messages, I mean methods, are the things that we need to focus on. Mm-hmm. You know, brothers like yourself need to be funded, man. So I, I just want to say we commend you for right. the work that you're doing. We yeah. commend you just being alive, you know. Wait, tell us what Wheelchairs Against Guns actually does. And then also how can people directly support you? So what, yeah, what does will what does wheelchairs against guns do? Our our sole purpose is to protect children from the dangers of bullying, gangs, and gun violence. You know. Like, I'm not a children on site, but I, I'm real heavy in schools. That's my main. I stick with the school. We've done over 200 schools. You know, we just spoke to over 2,000 students. And I've been doing going into school since since the inception of WAG, which was 2014. And we've been at everything. I, I can't, there's countless schools we've been into, countless kids whose lives have changed. I went and started a, um, a company, a non-medical transportation company. Mm-hmm. Where I trip with my company, we transport elderly people, assess a ride. You know, assess ride, uh, 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 curb, and all of those things. So I have cars on the street that transport these people. And I started this company for the sole purpose to fund my organization. If I don't know how to ask, you know, so if you could put me in touch with anybody that could, you know, direct me in the, in the ask part, it'd be a huge, you know, huge beneficial to my organization. How can we support you directly? I mean, you know, we got a website, wheelchairsagainstguns.org. You can go on there. You can make your contribution. Dot you can do everything that you need. You well, can donate there. You can find out the programming we'll be doing, what we're about. Mm-hmm. 
everything. Great. Th- yes, Wheelchairs Karen. against guns. Thank you so much. Thank you, man, Nelson. for the brother. I appreciate you, yeah. man. The work you're doing is phenomenal, and your story is so real and raw. And you know, and a lot of times that's what these kids need, and that's what they respect. They respect the rawness. They understand authenticity. You can't trick these kids. You can't make believe that you done something that you ain't. You know, they they know how to smell it on you. If it ain't on you, they know it ain't on you. So <laughs> we, we appreciate you coming from that perspective, brother. Continue and, to do the work. And listen, to hear you say that you actually have a transportation company and that that's how you fund your work is so important because a lot of people look at us and think that, I don't know, I guess they think money just drops off the skies or that <laughs> folks just, just, just donate and invest you know, millions of dollars. That's yep. not our situation. There are some people who have that, but unfortunately, until freedom does we not. And therefore, each one of us, of the four co-chairs of our organization, uh, Angelo Pinto is an attorney. He actually does his work every day as a lawyer. Uh, Linda Sarsour, she does political work. She works on campaigns. She does consulting work. I also, aside from being a speaker, um, you know, who is requested to do major your speeches across the country, but I also have a consulting firm and I do real work, working with corporations, working with agencies. And then my son is an artist. Um, he also is a consultant. And so we we understand. We appreciate you. Appreciate you. Thank King. you, sister. Anytime, anytime, brother. Anytime. Yes, sir. Thanks. This is it. Like for me, this six episode series is like really important. And it's important for people like Kareem. No, we're not glorifying his story. Mm -hmm. But his story is a story that so many have. And if we can, the fact that God saved him from so many different things means that he's supposed to be here to tell somebody something. That's right. And I'm, that's what I want to be a part of. The final season of Power Book 2 Ghost is here and no one's future is safe. After surviving a hit on her life, Monet, played brilliantly by Mary J. Blige, has to reckon with what led her to almost lose everything and to atone for the life she has forced her children to live. And on the other side of the coin, Davis, portrayed by the multi-talented Method Man, is suspended and on the verge of losing his law license. Desperate to survive, he fully embraces the criminal underbelly of his enterprise and finds himself working for both sides, loyal to whichever one benefits him most. And then, of course, there's Tariq, who finds himself at rock bottom and facing threats from every angle. With his future in the game in serious doubt and his family's safety on the line, will he lean into the St. Patrick name and do whatever has to be done to get back on top? Like father, like son. Power Book 2, Ghost, the final season. Watch now, only on Stars and the Stars app. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T, connecting changes everything. Limited time offer requires 0% APR, 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers, other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. When the NBA championship is on the line, every pass, every shot, and every dribble is immediately, undeniably consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. 
Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, real blood, and real tears. Trust me, I know what it takes to bring home a championship ring. The regular season is tough, but these games are a completely different level. Now is the time when legacies are made. The best team will bring home the Larry O'Brien Trophy and add their name to basketball history. Will we see a battle between marquee franchises or will we see a new champion crowned? Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? These are the moments of unscripted, pure entertainment that only happen on the hardwood. You've waited all season for this. It's time to take it to the next level. The NBA Finals continue. Tune in on ABC. That's how we own it! The reason why I think it's it's so important uh, to have you on today, man, Baraka, and why my son and I really wanted to have you as a part of this six-episode series that we're doing about gun violence is because you are approaching it exactly as, um, you know, we support what we believe. And that is that you could put all the police you want on the streets, but if you don't invest in the people, uh, you will never be able to reduce gun violence and to save lives. And so uh, we just wanted to hear from you today to hear more about what you're doing. Yeah, we, I mean, thank you. I mean, I'm honored to be on, first of all, uh, and I appreciate you having me on. You know, we're just in the middle of, the, of, of of hard work. You know, there's a lot of talk, a lot of stuff going on around the country. We are just really trying to lay one brick at a time. And it's, 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 it's hard, as I was expressing earlier, you know, in an environment, you know, where we're trying to create opportunity for social justice, uh, opportunities for people in our community and deal with gun violence uh, that's escalating uh, in our neighborhoods, you know, and one of the biggest critics of all of the things that you're going to have to deal with in terms of uh, trying to do this work are people that live in these neighborhoods, mothers, grandmothers, you know, folks that are raising kids in these communities that are, that are, you know, experiencing hard, high levels of violence. And just to put it in perspective, like 80% of the neighborhoods in Newark do not experience violent crime at all. 80%, right? So that looks like, that sounds like a good number. Uh, and, and we got this from Rutgers when they did their study, but that means that 20% of the community is experiencing 100% of the violence, right? Uh, uh, and so if you're in the 80%, then you're like, oh, it's all good. But if you're in the 20% of those neighborhoods, uh, then you, you have a real serious problem, a dramatic problem. Uh, and so we, we have to figure out how to deal with both of those things, like how to create an atmosphere uh, where we make the police respect our constitutional rights, uh, where social justice is is at the forefront of everything that we do, uh, and 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 reducing violence and crime, and so we think that public safety is not just the role of the police. Public safety is the role of all of us in this community, uh, and so we need to give give resources to other people in other areas where it's needed to help us reduce violence and crime and trauma uh, that has been incurred in our community over decades. Uh, and no, so the police can't deal with those issues, and so. That speaks directly to the idea of removing some funding and moving in other places to help, uh, you know, stabilize the community. So if violence is down, the need for police is down, uh, over policing in those communities is down. And and, and that's really how we're approaching it. Uh, violence is a public health issue. Uh, we created an Office of Violence Prevention and Trauma Recovery. Keisha Yuri is doing an outstanding job uh, trying to put this together and she's building it you know, as she going, you know, pulling community partners together, have a lot of consultants trying to figure out how to get this done, pulling all of the street organizations that do all of the violence intervention and prevention work together, everybody, and uh, trying to get data 
uh, and making sure that we uh, tackle hot spots in areas, uh, deal with trauma, deal with intervention in kids' lives, uh, helping families from domestic violence to shooting victims, uh, uh, everything uh, that they're involved in right now. And this summer, I think what um, Jamila is talking about, we, uh, as a part of our, our youth development program, we've hired, and, and, and even some adults now, over 100, maybe 140, I think, uh, folks who are directly involved uh, with the legal with the legal system, uh, directly involved in, in terms of shootings or shooting victims. Uh, we we created a, our own program. Uh, we paid them uh, to go listen to speakers, to go to forums, to to deal with trauma training, to 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 face the issues they're dealing with in their lives, to prepare them uh, to to stop the violence that they involved in in the community and and help them uh, get employment. And that's that's what we're working on. Uh, this summer, uh, amongst a, a myriad of other things. Right. Because as a young kid, you're very impressionable. And I remember when I was, like I said all the time, my first vision of success was in a, a lawyer. I didn't live next door to a lawyer. I lived next door to a drug dealer. So I wanted to be like the drug dealer. He had the girl I wanted, the car I wanted, all the things I wanted was this was the person I seen. And so hey, look, the data tells us if you grow up in a household where your siblings or, or parents have been incarcerated, you're more likely to be incarcerated yourself. You grew up in a household where you've been a victim or a perpetrator of violence, you're more likely to be a victim or perpetrator of violence yourself. So we identify, we know who these kids are. Like we can identify the social services system, know the law enforcement system, know the communities, know it's it's a it's less than two, three percent of the people in the community that's committing 90 percent of the violence that's going on. So we know where they are, we know how to identify them, we know what's the, the atmosphere that's going to create them. So we have to intervene immediately. We know it's getting ready to go down. Uh, and to watch it happen uh, almost makes us co-conspirators in it. That's a fact. Wow, that's deep. Makes us co-conspirators. It's, it's, it's so true. So we have to invite you back as we continue to go through this series uh, to have more dialogue about the steps that need to be taken because people will act like they don't know what to do. Well, you're a shining example of how to get it done. Thank you. All right, Thanks. peace. That's how we own it. So we just spoke to Mayor Ross Baraka, and he spoke to us about this person that we're about to interview right now. She is Lakeisha Yuri. She is the Executive Director of Violence Prevention and Trauma Recovery in Newark, New Jersey. She does all the work because Ross Barak is the mayor of Newark, and he has so much on his plate. She is the go-to person for all everything violence prevention and intervention inside of Newark, New Jersey. She has handle so much. I've worked with her. She is a phenomenal sister. Lakeisha Yuri, how are you doing today, Queen? I am good. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. Thank you so much. Mayor Baraka was telling us that um, the police, and I guess in conjunction with your office and others, have identified those people who are crisis. They're in crisis. So they uh, you know, are folks who have been identified as the troublemakers, the potential right. shooters. And you all are working with them. And I know you say the office that you have said that the office you're working on, um, it's in progress. But this work is already happening. It's just that at some point you guys are going to have a center, which I hope will become a national model, even an international model for how you bring violence down and how you work directly with the community. But every day at this point, you're, you're doing this work, working with these young people, trying to get them employed and to keep them off the streets. Am I, is that correct? 
That's correct. So what we find is the data says that 4% and sometimes even 10% of the population experience the most crime and violence or the small amount of people are committing the most crime and violence. And so rather than coming up with this approach where we are blanket, you know, doing strategies, it's focused deterrence, right? We go mm -hmm. right directly to the people who are committing the crime and violence and talking with them and seeing what is it that you need? Why are you robbing people? Why are you shooting people? Why did you join the gang that you're a part of? Why are you, you know, stealing cars? And just really trying to ask those questions and figure out what is it that we can do to get to the underlying por portions of it. We have um, people, so the police do have a list and they have a lot of intelligence around who people are and what's happening and what they're doing. And their strategy is just to arrest them. That's their only strategy. But we're saying no, that that's not enough because we have this cycle of violence that continues to happen if we just keep arresting people um, because they're doing things from behind the wall, inside the wall, outside the wall. And so we want to find out what is going on. So we are um, implementing. So right now I have a, a summer program um, and we want to extend it beyond the summer. Um, and it's called the Safe Summer Academy where we went after and recruited those people that we know are creating the most crime and violence in the city and we employed them. So I currently have mm -hmm. 120 individuals, um, 14 to 17, 18 to 24, and then a 25 and over um, groups. So I have about four sites and these are the people that we know are creating the crime and violence or have been victims of and we are trying to intervene so that they don't become the perpetrators of. And many of them have mental health issues, substance mm. abuse issues, have been incarcerated, have dropped out of school. And so we're very intentional about this um, population and we recognize some of the issues and we recognize trauma. And so many of the staff are trauma-informed trained and so we know what it takes to be able to engage them. What is your skill set? So my skill set is, is an organizer, right? I, I started on the grounds many years ago um, I organize, I'm a chair for the Newark Anti-Violence Coalition, but before that, right, I was in the, the New Black Panther Party. And before that, you know, so organizing people in the community has, has been um, my passion, but by trade and by um, education, I'm a social worker. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I have a master's degree in social work, but my heart and my passion is organizing people. And say it's say the work is not being done. I tell them that's not true because we got people who are on the front lines all the time. People no sleep because people don't understand what it takes to organize people. They don't understand that the phone calls have to happen, that we're at the hospitals with people, we're at the funerals with people, we're organizing the funerals, we're doing, we're calling the mayors, and we're doing all of the things um, that the behind the scenes that it takes to get in front of the cameras or to make the awareness happen. So when I first joined the North Anti-Violence Coalition, the way that we brought attention to violence was by going into the streets and stopping the traffic. And so we stopped the traffic for 155 weeks in a row, rain, sleet, snow, no matter the weather condition to bring awareness to it for families who wasn't our own families. Wow, that, that, wow. That, right, we have to push the police and we're going from county to county and police department to police department. And those things take, it takes skill, it takes ingenuity, it takes energy, it takes sleep, it takes resources, it takes all of those things to be able to bring about change. And so I don't want people to dismiss 
the skills that it takes for those things to happen, but the energy and the passion, because many of us, this has been on our doorsteps and we're trying to stop it from landing on other people's doorsteps. We appreciate you so much. And it feels good to be able to highlight your work because I know that you wear it on your sleeve. Um, and, you know, I have to be the one to say, because I think it's important. And I think the mayor would say as well, with all that he's trying to do and the fact that he's pulled in a million directions, as my son said, um, you know, when, when we first brought you on, uh, he has he has responsibilities that are beyond violence prevention and intervention. And to have a strong black woman sitting in this seat, helping to coordinate and organize people, I know it makes the mayor proud as well. That's why he mentioned you during his interview. And we wanna do whatever we can to support you and to make sure that you are able to keep the stamina and the energy to keep going. And so thanks again, thanks for talking with us and know that we are here, the show is here, but we are also here personally to support you. That's how we own it, that's how we own it. With this young lady, I've read her bio, and she is amazing as well. Joining us today is Miss Tia Bell from the Trigger Project. She's also a grassroots organizer and, and who focuses on gun violence. She's been impacted, family members, friends, and she utilized her pain, and she also turned it to purpose. So thank you, Tia Bell, for joining us yeah, today. Yeah, I'm, I want to, again, just say I'm grateful to, to be on this platform, and share my unique perspective. Um, I like to believe that God designed my life to join this fight and really ending gun violence. And it's reaffirming, unfortunately, that our deep wounds require deep, deep, deep healing. Um, the Trigger Project stands for true reasons I grabbed the gun evolved from risk. And as a survivor, I almost lost my mom when I was 10. She was shot twice in broad daylight. It wasn't a shock. You know, um, I knew who had did it um, and there wasn't a Shanduk to come to me and say, hey, let me get a full understanding of what you know that happened. Let me get you on the basketball court so you can release your feelings. Let me um, support you, mentor you so you can figure out what you want to eat so you don't think you're burdening your mom who's healing. You know, I didn't have that. So just with the combination of losing friends after my almost losing my mom, losing my stepdad, now losing young people, I realized that the voice of the shooter is missing. So when you say Trigger Project, you, 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 you embody the voice of the shooter because we all have a trigger finger, but no one's asking the question, black or white, you know, why if just the best guns was just, or sticks, as my babies like to say, was laying in the middle of the street. Why would some people be able to just walk past them like they're nothing? And why would some people see it as a commodity, see it as a resource, see it as a language? You know, we, we're criminalizing our culture and our music versus really getting to the source of, of our pain. And, and that's what the Trigger Project is about. Yes. I do a lot of um, fundraising and, and asking and, and presenting and proposing because my young people need beds. They need Legos for their brothers and sisters so they don't go rob somebody to get the money to do it. I'm competing with the streets. And so earlier you asked, is money a solution? Um, it absolutely is because first I think doing things <clears throat> that we do should receive uh, compensation. You know, I work as a full-time high school counselor. 
I'm off in the summer times. I go hard in the summer because I'm paid for my nine to five and, and I got free time, you know, but I'm also the mother of a three-year-old and um, this work is nonstop. You know, young people don't have boundaries. They're not supposed to, you know, they're asked and requests are, are substantial and it may be from fixing a broken nail to doing a college application, but my time, my opportunity and, and, and my counseling, uh, my supervision, uh, my team who also pours into these young people, that's the solution. Um, and, and we need the government, uh, we need city officials, we need philanthropists to really get on the side of thinking outside the box um, because it may look like intervening and stopping the police, but it also may look like just giving a young person $100 because they just misplaced their zip and they won't do something to get it back. And so I, I need... Um, I needed this platform and I needed this opportunity because I do believe uh, public helping our way through this is the solution. And um, I do believe that I am an addition to violence interruption and to just this uh, progressive uh, transformation that all black cities have made. Returning citizens are running the city. And um, I do believe that I am an addition to violence interruption and to just this uh, progressive a transformation that all black cities have made. Returning citizens are running the city, you know, um, and it's a beautiful thing. And it shows that transformation is real. Tell us how people can support uh, the Trigger Project. I'm Tia Bell, founder of the Trigger Project. Jack, <laughs> two true reasons I grabbed the gun, evolved from risk. We're the voice of the youngins and the shooter. And um, our website is www.thetriggerproject.org. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Trigger Project DC. And we do have a cash shop because we're not that big yet. So it's dollar sign Trigger Project. And you are donating to and supporting, again, the nourishment, the enrichment, um, just the betterment of, of the young people that I serve. That's how we own it. That's how we own it. That's how we own it. You know what? We really literally have. A lot of friends a lot of that friends. do a lot of great things. Great things, you know. And I know sometimes we always say, "Well, we need to find people that we don't necessarily agree with on issues and make sure they are part of the show." But I do. I always wanted to create a platform that gives voice to folks that people don't see often. And then you have uh, Phil Banks, um, who started out twenty nine. Well, it, it, for twenty nine years, he worked within the NYPD. Started out, of course, as a beat cop then became a precinct commander, a borough commander, went to community affairs, which is where uh, the beginning of our relationship is, where he's now over the police officers who are in the community all the time and was leading an effort and did a very good job of reshaping what community affairs looked like in New York City and making sure that it was really, really for the community. And then, of course, before retiring, he became chief of departments, um, where he was literally, uh, I guess, I would say second to the the commissioner running New York City. Um, and I, I got an opportunity to go from community affairs to chief of department. So I understand the intricacies of the NYPD and policing across the country based upon my relationship with you, Phil. And I want to thank you uh, for coming on with my son and, and me today. Yes, sir. Um, you know, the thing, the thing I laugh about, though, is because 
you know, many times I would go and say, well, you know, this police are doing this, that, and the third thing wrong. And he's like, who are you talking about? Pookie? I know Pookie. Like, I was out there with Pookie needs to be arrested because Pookie is a danger to society. I'm like, no, he needs services. Yeah, he might need all of that. But right now, we need to get Pookie off the streets. Like, don't tell me about Pookie and Ray Ray because going through all of these steps from being a beat cop all the way to chief of departments, he knows the community. He lives in Queens. He has young kids. He has brothers who are in all different fields, people, and lives in he knows and understands the street life very well, works with Erica Ford. So this is not, so you can't really talk him, you know, into these corners because he actually has things to say that you have to be able to address at the same time. But clearly he understands the need to put in the community. You understand the need, Phil, to put in the community the resources that's necessary so that police are not in contact um, in the ways in which they are with individuals who need services and support. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, T, I think you bring up an interesting point. And I think that until we as a as a city, as a country, as a community, as a world, come to the conclusion on both sides that policing, one, can no longer be just the responsibility of law enforcement because they can't get it right. Right. You know what you know. And importantly, most people don't know what they don't know, mm. right? So they just fill in the blanks, right? And subsequently, we have now, in my opinion, um, uh, a dynamic with police reform and tough on crime. People think are mutually exclusive. When I say tough on crime, I mean, I mean keeping the citizens safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you have to have police reform. And in these cities, we are policing the same way we've been policing for 50 and 60 years. And it has to stop because it doesn't work. And I would challenge that it never worked. It gave short-time results, but I will challenge that it has never had full-time uh, results. But that's an argument that a lot of people can make. But I do know vehemently, and I will strongly, is that we have to change the way we police these cities. And that change has to come from a combination of the law enforcement world who's willing to admit mistakes, willing to realize that they don't have all the answers, and then the advocacy world, the, the activist community like yourself, they realize that there's an aspect of this that you may not realize, but what you can bring to the table and what we can bring to the table together, mm-hmm. that we can totally change how we please. I, I, I actually don't see any other way that we can have any type of uh, a fair and equitable and safe results for, uh, for, this, for the country. So from your point of view, what do you think is the next step? What do you think really needs to be done to, to either to stop the violence and build stronger police and community together. So there's no there's no one answer to that. But the first thing is this, is that you have to have uh, a system. When I say you, the community, right, the people, and even internally, because internally you have police officers that, not, that don't even trust the, the concept of policing. You have to build that trust. And that trust is not designed to take people to basketball games, not to take seniors to uh, shopping. There's got to be a real trust that government is working for the people and that policing is here to help my life better. Right. The litmus test has got to be when the average person who is not committing a crime, which is 99 percent of us, 99.5 percent of us, when they see a police officer, they feel relieved, that they feel happy. And the police have to figure that out. Why? Why does that not happen? And I'm going to profess that there are very simple solutions. If people are willing to stop and listen, it's not as complicated. Once you have that trust, then 
you have to be able to make these policies that are coming out that are beneficial for the community. So I'll give you a point and example. When we in the police department come out with a strategy, and let's just say a gun strategy to apprehend guns off the street, there's no community involvement in that at all. We just, mm-hmm. we're, we're coming up with just the data, the people who wear uniform, and this is what we think that's going to happen that's going to reduce the amount of guns that's on the street. But there's no, there's, there's the religious community does no pine in that. The activist community does no pine in that. The grandmother community does not opine in that. Industry does no pine in that. And there's so much that we could receive from these individuals, from these entities, that we can now come up with a very comprehensive, stronger strategy to bring guns up the street where everybody's in the same boat and everybody now is going to live and die with those results. And we don't do that because we have been brought up in a system that we know what's best for you, so sit back. And that mindset has got to, has got to change immediately. When you became chief of departments, things changed because you was really the big fish. Like you were running the police department. Um, And I see the work that happened and I know the direction that you were taking the NYPD. And I think it was unfortunate that you were not, and I know this is not your words, it's mine. I I think it was unfortunate that you were not um, uh, appointed to be commissioner. I think you would have done an incredible job at commissioner. I still think that you should be drafted for the commissioner um, job under the new mayor. But I appreciate it when you were within the community affairs department. When you ran that department, I saw and learned so much about what the NYPD could be. Um, and so I hope that, you know, I, and, and now I'm be honest with you, while I think that you know, those individuals who are there now, do I think that they're trying to do a good job? Certainly. But it's not the same aggressive, bold work that I saw happening when you were in that position. So sometimes we rise in the ranks and it's good that we make it to other successful places. But sometimes the work that we were doing before we got to this, you know, high profile, high calling um, was actually more effective. So that's just my personal opinion. Thanks. Thank you so much, PB3, uh, Chief Philip Banks. Thanks Thanks. for being with us. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. That's how we own it. That's how we own it. That's how we own it. We seem to have dope friends, man. This brother right here is somebody who I've watched throughout the years. You know, somebody that I've modeled and I've, you know, I've admired from afar and then became really close with him just watching him do his coming home from prison. Yeah. You know, coming home from prison and understanding his purpose, you know, and directing from the street life and changing his whole trajectory, mm-hmm. making movies and making documentaries. And amazing family Just amazing work, man. man. Family amazing man. Family man. That's family right. Man. He, was, <laughs> he was doing interviews. First person you see doing interviews with do-rags on. Yeah. Like, yep, he made yep. it cool for, to be from the hood and just transition and not make it look corny. You know what I'm saying? So I just want to say... Welcome to our brother Sansom Styles. He yeah. has he has a documentary or what is it a documentary called Killer yeah. the Beef? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yes, yeah. Man. I appreciate y'all. Um, we all in this together for sure. Um the documentary is called Killing Beef, Gun Violence in the Black Community. That's right. So what what is Killing the Beef about? Killing Beef is about um it's a double entendre. So we know beef, killing beef can be somebody taking somebody's head off, which is killing beef. And it could be, you know, a resolution, resolving the beef, which mm-hmm. is, yo, kill, kill that beef, squash it, dead it, right? So I use that um, 
because that's what I did in that documentary. I killed the beef for one of the guys that shot me up in 88. I got shot five times by two, two cats. And um, when one of the cats he had came home from prison, when he came home, instead of us continuing the beef, you know, we wound up getting together and talking to these youth and sharing our story. And um, youth that was in detention centers, alternative to incarceration programs and schools. And the way we did it, it was done in such a way that was so impactful. Um, I said, yo, I gotta start recording this. I gotta start recording these sessions and, and make something out of it because people are not gonna believe it. This type of stuff don't usually happen. So we put the doc together and it's been like very successful. People that watch it, you know, it's been positive response, no negative response whatsoever. I mean, not one negative comment saying any anything bad about it. So this person shot you and then you guys got together. How did you find him? And what well, was that like? This is like common what happens in the hood, right? Um, this is in the 80s when I used to, you know, I used to rob drug dealers. I used to stick up drug dealers. And, you know, I used to um, I used to be one of those active shooters in the neighborhood. So what happened is I robbed somebody for their stuff. Um, you know, I had robbed this dude, stuck him up, tied him up and stuff, and um, took everything that was in his safe and his jewelry. So I thought it was his, but come to find out it belonged to this other guy. He made me think it was his and like he's balling like that. So I got him, but it belonged to another guy. The guy that it belonged to grew up in my in my family's building. Mm. So to the point that one of his nephews is named after my uncle. Mm. So back in the streets, I guess, you know, in those days, it doesn't matter. So when he rolled up on me about the situation and with his guns out, it was, I mean, with his gun out, it was on the 4th of July. When he rolled up on me, you know, I tried to convince him to go around the corner because there's too many kids outside. It was the 4th of July, it was a cookout. So it was a lot of action and stuff going on. So I was like, you know, let's go around the corner and talk. And um, one thing led to another. I don't want to give too much away because I even have this in the film. Oh, wow. But, but what happened is, um, the guy that I also robbed was with him that I didn't see. So mm. now I had two guns pointed at me. Mm. And, um, you know, the end result was I wound up getting shot up. So the guy that came behind me, I knew who he was, but the people in the area didn't know who he was. And, and, and you know, my family members didn't know. So he, he didn't get in any trouble for it. Smoke, uh, that's the guy who shot me up. He, I mean, one of the guys, the one that lived in my grandmother's building, everybody around the neighborhood knew who he was. Mm. So that was that was dumb, you know, on his part to let that the bullets fly around the kids, kids jumping around. You know, people was pissed off. My family knew him. They thought I wasn't going to make it. So, you know, they they testified on him. A lot of the people in the neighborhood testified on him. So I didn't. And, um, you know, he thought that he would be able to beat the trial because I wasn't coming to court, but they used the testimony of other witnesses and then my hospital report. And, you know, he still got convicted. So when he came home, uh, I, by the time he came home, I was at BET and mm. I'm doing, I'm doing great stuff now. My life changed totally around. And then I got the message. My aunt had um, texted me and said, you know, 
this guy's out of jail. So then I started worrying a little bit because I said, man, I don't want to get pulled back in, you know, to this, to this type of life. So I asked my aunt, do she know where he's staying at? And that was just for me to know in case something happened to, you know, to if, if he was going to come looking for me, then I would be pulled into the game right all over again while I'm doing this great work already at BET. That, that was that thin line between the streets and where I was at now being legal. So um, I had his one of his boys reached out to me because he didn't want to see nothing happen to me and he didn't want to see nothing happen to him. So he reached out to me and said, yo, would you talk to, do you, would you mind sitting down and talking to him? And I said, yeah, I'll talk to him. You know, gave him my number. I said, tell him to call me. So when he called me, you know, we spoke for a couple of hours on the mm-hmm. phone. That first conversation, we spoke for a couple of hours about the incident, about what was wrong about the incident, um, about how the young ones are coming up now mm-hmm. and, 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 and what he was doing in prison as far as he was facilitating talking to the young to try to, the, 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 you know, the young people coming to prison to try to deter them from going back to that way of life and what I was doing on the outside. So it was a perfect match for me to invite him because I was already speaking to youth at detention centers and stuff, just being on BET and them knowing where I came from. They was listening to me. They was relating to me. So I said, I might as well bring him on with me mm. to tell our story. And at the same time, we could become valuable to each other so we won't have to worry about killing each other. Because if I'm valuable to you and I'm bringing you around and, you know, I'm helping you and our main focus is to help these young people be on the right track and we on that same page, then we could do this together. Exactly. This is about gun violence and all of the, you know, the violence that's going on in our community. I want you to give us like a final word that you would say to these young kids that's out here shooting. Like, what do you tell them? You know, being a victim, also being a shooter, just understanding both dynamics of what's going on, just seeing what's going on these streets right now. What would you say to them? Like, if you, if you had to say, what you say right now? Right now, I would tell the youth that are pulling those triggers to know your history, man, to understand why you act in the way that you do. Because the more you understand, the less likely you are to pull up that trigger. And to know that this isn't because you're animals or that you were raised a certain way and or that you had bad parenting, although some of that may play a part. But the main thing is that it's the social economic conditions that we're in that causes this to happen. And before black people started occupying these spaces, they were immigrant white people that were occupying these spaces. And they had the same exact problem that we have today. Hmm. They had a violence, a white on white violence, which wasn't stated white on white violence, but they had the same thing going on. And what happened? The government came in, they gave them the GI loans, they helped subsidize their moves from the the urban areas into the suburbs, and then had them um, get homes, affordable homes, which later increased in value. And that's what ceased that white on white violence. That's dope. A lot of people don't know that. That's what we're fighting for. Samson, we appreciate you so much for coming on. And we want to support you. Uh, Tell everybody again the name of your film and also where they can find it. Thank you. Um, The documentary is Killing Beef, Gun Violence in the Black Community. 
You can see it on Tubi TV. You can see it on Amazon. You can see mm -hmm. it on Apple TV, Xbox, Fandango. Um, it's it's all over. It's Just all Google over it and you'll see. Yeah, absolutely. Thank we you so much. Appreciate you, King. Man. We love you. Appreciate y'all. We got love work to do, bro. man. We got work to do. I'm gonna hit you That's later. Up. That's up. Peace. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the love making us the number one <laughs> in the world. In we our number minds. one. No, not in, in our minds. minds. We are and number in our one. Hearts. Just keep on it's number one, the best, best podcast in the world. And um write us, let us know what you feel. If you got any topics, ideas, tell us how great we are. Tell me how awesome I am, how much you like my hat. You can go get it. It's online. You know what I'm saying? Support us. I'm not gonna always be right. To me, it's not gonna always be wrong, but we will both. I guarantee you, we will both always, always be authentic. Peace. That's how we own it. That's how we own it. That's how we own it. Oh. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. Every pass, shot, and dribble is immediately consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, blood, and tears, real legacies. Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? You already know when and where to find these moments of unscripted, pure entertainment. The NBA Finals continue. Tune in on ABC. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details.